Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Well, welcome back one and all to the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. For the next couple of weeks, uh, between traveling for work and caring for our families and scheduled vacation time, we haven't had a time that all of us are on site at the same moment uh, to record a new episode. We really appreciate your continued listening, and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be playing a couple of Joe Boot's recent lectures that haven't yet been released elsewhere online. Today, I want to bring you a lecture that was originally delivered to a group of educators on the challenges and opportunities for Christians in the contemporary realm of education. I hope you enjoy it. We'll look forward to getting back shortly to our regularly scheduled programming. So I've entitled what I'm going to say, uh, Why Christian Education, a Christian Calling and Heritage. So... Uh, once again, the format will be about a 45-minute lecture, followed by um, an opportunity for live question and answer, as we can then go um, to some of your um, questions regarding culture and education. And so here is what we can call one very specific application of what we dealt with in our first lecture, as we delineated the meaning of culture, the meaning of the gospel, the direction of culture and the transformation of culture. Here's one specific area that we're now going to zone in on, especially since uh, the majority of you are part of the uh, Christian uh, Teachers Association there in Colombia. So first of all, then, let's consider the challenge and the opportunity uh, that we have in this, the area of Christian education. Here's what the scripture says in Deuteronomy. Only be on your guard and diligently watch yourselves so that you don't forget the things your eyes have seen and so that they don't slip from your mind as long as you live. Teach them to your children and your grandchildren. The day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Assemble the people before me and I will let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and may instruct their children. That's Deuteronomy 4, 9 through 10, and then Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 18 verses 6 through 7 said, But whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believes in me, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offences, for offences must come, but woe to that man by whom the offence comes. That word downfall there or stumble is 
uh, the Greek word scandalizo, and it means to throw towards ruin. So the Bible puts a high premium upon the instruction of our children, uh, upon the centrality of the task of education and raising our children in the faith. Uh, this is what, of course, Paul tells parents in Ephesians as well, to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And uh, this has been taken seriously historically over the centuries by the church. So in the West, most education until the latter part of the 19th century was in the hands of the church and was funded by the church. It was paid for by the church. It was only in the, uh, the latter part of the 19th century that the state began to get involved in the area of education. It was a matter for families and churches. And of course, there's been a big change culturally uh, in the 20th century as we've become more statist in our thinking and as the Christian heritage has waned. So despite the centrality of what the Bible says about education, many professing believers today, even though the uh, schools, uh, the state schools, uh, certainly in my own country, are radically secular and humanistic, having a pagan direction. When you talk about Christian education, people still tend to look at you sideways for the most part. Uh, disorientation, disbelief, and even dismay can come across people's faces when you talk about the centrality of the task of Christian education. Sometimes after a bit of an uncomfortable silence, talking to a fellow believer about these things, there is an outright denial often that Christian education is possible or necessary or desirable. And such uh, conclusions are one of the reasons why the church in the West is where it is today and why we are losing the vast majority of our children to the faith before they finished university. Somewhere between 65 and 80% of children who are raised in Christian homes in North America have lost their faith by the age of 23. Usually it's during the university period that they feel they've got enough independence to um, move away from the faith of their parents or actually to admit to them they never believed it in the first place. Now contrast that typical attitude we are facing today in Western culture, and I know the situation is somewhat different in Colombia, but it's the same challenge, uh, the state control of education and the role of Christians in, in education being contrasted. But consider by contrast Abraham Kuyper. He was a great Dutch theologian, a politician, a statesman. He served as prime minister of the Netherlands for a short while at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. And uh, he was convinced that in the late modern world, since the so-called enlightenment, it would be critical for Christians to once again recover, as in the past, independent and distinctly Christian approaches to the various disciplines, including institutions and organizations that addressed life and culture from a scriptural standpoint. This was because Kuiper recognized that Western culture was steadily pulling up its roots in the gospel of Christ. And he understood that over a hundred years ago. So you can begin to, if he was seeing the beginnings of that then, is it any wonder 100, 120 years later, 
we're seeing what we are now in places like England, Canada, and the United States. But this is what he wrote concerning secular humanistic institutions and schools. He said this, and I quote, the leadership in such organizations never falls to us, that is Christians, but always and inflexibly to our opponents. They carry out their intention, and whoever of us embarks with them ends up where they want to land, but where we never may land. The spirit at work in such principally unbelieving organizations is so alluring and, and contagious that almost none of us, once he enters into such company, can offer resistance to it. One absorbs this poison without suspecting it. Once one is part of such organization, one sees one's Christian principle doomed to silence, end quote. Now, if ever there was a word of prophecy about uh, Western educational life, that is it. Spoken at the beginning of the last century, they've proven very prescient indeed. When you consider the lack of Christian influence in education in the West today, the general silence of the Christian principle is notable. Neither do many Christians actually realize the slow contagion affecting their children, which is reducing the faith to the place of irrelevance. Uh, and yet the utmost concern of the Christian should be relating their faith in Christ and his word to the world around them. So on the one hand, the schools are making their faith seem totally irrelevant, and yet the task of the Christian is to relate their faith to the world around them. So I want to, uh, in this lecture, having introduced something of the challenge, highlight three ways, three simple ways, in which a Christian education enables us to relate Christ and his lordship to the world around us. That is obviously the essence of the task. So how can it be done? Well, first of all, a Christian education helps us to see, so the first point is this, education and world and life view. So three things, I'm gonna talk about world and life view, I'm gonna talk about work and worship. These are the three ways in which we can relate Christ and his lordship to the world around us. So first of all, education and world and life view. For a Christian, a Christian education helps us to see the world and our lives right side up. It's like a, a good set of lenses so that you can see clearly. It enables us to see accurately. A huge part of the Christian life is learning to love God with our minds, which is part of the great commandment, learning to see everything in the cosmos and human culture through the lens of God's word revelation in creation and scripture. Now, in order to do that, we have to do a little bit of simple reflection on worldview. And I promise you, it's actually very elementary, basic reflection on the question of worldview, which we must do as educators. The, uh, the noted British missiologist Leslie Newbigin said this. He says, the way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story of which my life story is a part? Let me just say that to you again. It should be on your screen. The way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. 
What is the real story of which my life story is a part? So what Newbegin has in mind here is a worldview founding narrative. That is a broad interpretation of life, of reality, of history, capable of giving meaning to life itself. Now that enables us to connect the uh, redemptive narrative given to us in scripture. Think about that for a moment. It begins with creation. It ends with recreation. Let's call that the redemptive narrative. That allows us to connect this redemptive narrative in scripture, uh, our creation, fall into sin and redemption in Jesus with what at times can seem like a rather specialized concept of worldview because worldview as Newbegin says is about the human story and asking the question, what is the real story of which my life story is a part. Now, this is a critical issue for all of us to think about to some degree. If we don't give some time and attention to the question of worldview, our thinking and our educating as believers will be shallow, it will be superficial. Our defense of the faith in a challenging cultural context will be fragile and it will be unconvincing because we won't have thought through these foundational issues. If I can go back to Kuiper for just one moment, who made such an important contribution to Christian thought, uh, he, he really helped unpack the implications of, a, of an evangelical vision of the gospel. And he argues that this really emerged from the Reformation. He uses the term Calvinism for the Reformation in this citation. But this is what he says. He says that the the... This, this worldview orientation in Calvinism made its appearance not merely to create a different church form, but an entirely different form for human life, to furnish human society with a different method of existence and to populate the world of, hu of the human heart with different ideals and conceptions. Calvinism did not stop at church order, but expanded in a life system and did not exhaust its energy in dogmatical construction, but created a life and worldview, and such a one as was, and still is, able to fit itself to the needs of every stage of human development in every department of life. So what he was saying is, is that when you really recover a biblical gospel, you're not just recovering um, church doctrine, you're recovering a total way of looking at the world. You're recovering a set of lenses that enables you to see things accurately in every area of life. It's a world and life view. And it fits every stage of human development and every department of life. Now, that's not to say that you can't be a Christian. You can't be saved without a sophisticated interpretation uh, or understanding of worldview. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. And uh, you don't need a degree in worldview to understand the gospel and be saved. Worldview, though, is an attempt to uh, elucidate, to, to tease out certain basic structural features of the gospel to equip us uh, for our missionary task. So worldview is an attempt to, to tease out, to identify critical structural features of the gospel of the kingdom 
in a fairly systematic and then schematized way so that our Christian understanding develops beyond Jesus loves me and he's died on the cross to save me and knowledge of some Bible stories into a systematic, systematized understanding of a Christian view of the world. So I gave the illustration earlier of a set of lenses. Our world and life view is an interconnected set of beliefs and assumptions through which we look at life and the world and which then shapes our approach to all of life, informing what we will embrace and teach. So worldview goes before even our various philosophies of politics or of education or whatever. Sometimes we end up sort of falling into and just accepting what's around us with respect to philosophies of politics or education or law. Um, we're then unaware that actually we've imbibed a worldview without fully appreciating it. So we need to have this distinctly Christian worldview uh, worked out. Now, Albert Walters, a Canadian philosopher, has pointed out, and I think in a very helpful illustration, uh, how this works. He's clarified the purpose of a Christian worldview, I think, within a very helpful way. This is what he says. Worldview functions like a gearbox on a car. The gearbox functions in a mediating way between the power of the engine and the tires that move the car, where the rubber meets the road. Worldview reflection on scripture mediates between the power of the gospel and human life where that gospel must be brought to bear. Too often the gospel has been contextualized through a mediating worldview which fails to do justice to the radicality and integrality of the biblical message, which is, he says, everything is part of God's creation, everything has been touched by sin's destructive power, and everything can participate in the renewing work of God in Christ by the Spirit. So, he's saying the gospel is power in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, but if it's not mediated to our lives, if it's not connected to our lives in the correct way, in a truly scriptural way, we don't actually make any headway. We don't make any progress in life. We don't make any headway in culture in Christian terms. You have a lot of noise by the sound of the engine of the gospel, but all that power that's wrapped up in the gospel of the kingdom never meets the road. It never actually takes us forward because it's not, the power is not mediated through the gearbox of a biblical world and life view. And that's why this is so important. It provides the forward motion for the Christian uh, gospel uh, as we apply it culturally. Biblical worldview thus has this immediate relevance to all of us as Christians. To ignore the question of worldview, uh, Walters actually said, and I agree with him, uh, is to deny the practical relevance of Scripture to the greater part of our workaday lives. So we can't ignore it. Well, let's look quickly then, as we can continue just to think about education and worldview, um, let's think about just some of the most basic foundational worldview questions. And, and this is where it, it becomes clear that actually basic worldview reflection is not that complicated. The foundational questions worldviews addressed uh, address are basically five. Five foundational questions that worldviews address. One, who are we? 
as a fairly basic one. Two, where are we? Three, what is wrong? Four, what is the remedy? And five, what time is it? Or where are we in the story? So think about that. Who are we? Where are, where are we? What's wrong? What's the remedy? Where are we in the story? What time is it? Now, if you think about any particular worldview, religious worldview, you will find that they are answering, offering an answer to these basic questions. Uh, let me give one illustration for you. Buddhism, in answering the question, who are we, would say that we are uh, emanations from the one. Uh, the, uh, they would say that uh, effectively there is no uh, individual independent human identity, but we are emanations of the one uh, Brahmin. Where are we? They would say, well, we live in a veil of illusion, a veil of illusion. We have no access to, uh, well, the world out there as it appears to us is just that, an appearance. It's a veil of illusions. What's wrong? The Buddhists would say what's wrong is desire, the problem of desire. Suffering uh, in human experience is a fundamental problem but the reason it's there is that we have desires. We need to be liberated from those desires uh, to realize through cessation, through meditation, the oneness of all things. And having realized that, uh, the problem of suffering is thought to evaporate. What's the remedy? Well, it's meditation, it's finding cessation, it's getting enlightenment. Um, what time is it? Well, you're somewhere in an endless cycle of recurrence and of reincarnation. So when you think about those five questions I've just given to you on the spot very quickly and inadequately, but as a summary, how the Buddhist want to answer those five questions. The essential contours of biblical faith, by contrast, as set out in the, in the gospel, answer these questions in terms of one, who are we? Well, we're creatures of God. We are uh, image bearers of God. We are uh, loved by God. We were ordained by God. We were foreseen by God. And uh, we are um, his image bearers called to be priests in creation. That's who we are. Where are we is also answered by the doctrine of creation. We're in God's world. Uh, which is meaning. Creation is meaning, and we live as creatures of God in it. Uh, what is wrong? Well, the Christian says a sin because of the fall of man, rebellion, uh, a fall into uh, alienation, uh, being under the wrath, the righteous judgment and wrath of God because of sin and rebellion, we're alienated from God. That's what's wrong. What is the remedy? Well, the Bible says redemption. Salvation, redemption, reconciliation to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And what time is it? Where are we in the story? Well, we are somewhere between the resurrection and the final uh, restoration and consummation of all things at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
uh, where all history will be brought to its final conclusion. So there you can see very quickly uh, a sketch of how the Christian world and life view answers those five basic questions that every worldview is offering an answer to. Now, most of us are aware that in our cultural moment, if you uh, down there in South America look at the Western world and you see its decadence, you will know that the Christian worldview is uh, misunderstood. It's increasingly widely rejected. More often than not now in the younger generation, it's unknown. And this is because for at least a century, it's been in fierce conflict with a competing system, that of modernity or post-modernity or ultra-modernity. It's a form of practical atheism, and it comes in a variety of permutations, and the West has also begun to embrace, as part of that, a variety of pagan spiritualities. The secular political religion, then, that surrounds us today has seen significant success. And over a century ago, if I just go back to Abraham Kuyper for a moment, he was speaking at Princeton, University in 1898, and this is what he said about this conflict that we're in. Two life systems are wrestling with one another in mortal combat. Modernism is bound to build a world of its own from the data of the natural man and to construct man himself from the data of nature. While on the other hand, all those who reverently bend the knee to Christ and worship him as the son of the living God and as God himself are bent upon saving the Christian heritage. This is the struggle in Europe. This is the struggle in America. So he saw that there were these two life systems wrestling against one another, these two worldviews wrestling against each other in mortal combat. One constructing reality out of the mind and the data of the natural man, the other recognizing Christ as Lord and King. It's the antithesis we talked about in our first session. And after commenting on the fact that the West seems determined to abandon its Christian heritage in favor of a version of Buddhism uh, that emerges in German political philosophy, uh, Kuiper said this, modernism, which denies and abolishes every difference, cannot rest until it, it has made woman man and man woman and putting every distinction on a common level kills life by placing it under the ban of uniformity. Well, again, you can see how prophetic that is when you consider movements like the radical progressive uh, gender mainstreaming movement and the LGBTQ movement in our schools and through corporations today, you can see how right he was. So non-Christian worldviews uh, if consistently worked out, lead to the development of philosophies that steadily kill life, as Kuiper says, and render uh, history ultimately meaningless. Education will obviously be done in terms of one worldview or another. As you teach, you're going to teach in terms of one worldview or another, whether you've thought it through fully or not. The Christian view of reality asserts at the outset, at the very beginning, as we saw in the Christian worldview, the creative work of God, the creative work of God. Now, as a teacher, you know, there are many aspects of creation that are studied in school. For example, we study mathematics, the 
arithmetical aspect of life. We study the physical in physics, the biological in biology, the sensitive aspect in psychology, the logical in logic, the historical, cultural in various humanities, the lingual, the social, the economic, the aesthetic, the juridical, the moral, the faith aspect, and so on. These are all in the subject areas that we teach in school and in the university. But the central question is, how do all these different aspects relate to each other? What gives them meaning? What is the unity in the midst of all that diversity? In biblical faith, none of these aspects of our experience exist by themselves or for themselves, but they are coherently interwoven in mutual relationship, pointing uh, toward each other and then beyond themselves to their origin, ultimately in God. Think of a human person for a moment. Think of a human being. Think of one of the students in your class. A human person functions in all these different aspects of reality, but cannot be reduced to any one of them. So we are physical beings. Um, we can be analyzed in terms of physics, but we have a biological makeup, so we can also be analyzed biologically. We're emotional creatures, so there's a sensitive aspect to our lives. We are are rational creatures who are analytical and who are constantly engaged in cultural formation. So we're also cultural beings. We have the ability to symbolically communicate through language and socially interact. So in all of these things that we do and in all our relations, there is an economic aspect, an aesthetic aspect, a juridical aspect, a moral aspect. There are all of these different aspects and lying at their root is a faith orientation in our hearts, as we saw in the first session, that orients us towards some idea of ultimacy. That is, there will be something that we believe, something at the root of our worldview that is non-dependent, that we give a non-dependent status to. If it's not the living God, the creator of scripture, Something else is given the position of the divine of non-dependent status in our view of reality. Now, the coherence of these various aspects of creation point beyond themselves in the Christian view to a total meaning. So I know that's quite abstract. So let me just give you an illustration, which I hope is on your screen now, um, of a prism. The sun's light... uh, as you probably know as a school teacher, shines through, is refracted through a prism. And when when light is refracted through a prism, it spreads out into seven bands of color. We have a spectrum of color, seven bands of color. Now, when you look at those bands of color, each band is a dependent refraction of white light. So you look at all the colors, They are all, they're not independent. They are all a refraction of the one white light together individually and together as a band of color. No one band of color in that refracted light can be thought of as the sum of all the others. And if you actually stop white light then from the light shining through a prism, uh, all the colors 
vanish into nothing, all of them. And yet white light itself is not found in the refracted colors. So light shines into the prison. It's refracted into a band of seven colors. You can't account for all the colors in terms of any of the colors in those that are refracted. And if you stop light passing through the prism, all the colors disappear, vanish. The non-refracted white light in this illustration represents a totality to which all these other aspects point. And it's this uh, which ultimately gives them meaning. So the light, if you will, can be um, a, an analogy, an illustration of the word of God. Just as light has its origin in a source of light, so all of the cosmos takes its rise from an origin by whom and for whom it was created. So God's creation law word, his word is that totality of meaning behind all the diversity of created reality, which is refracted in the, let's continue the analogy, in the prism of time. So if, the, if we can say that the, that the prism is like time, cosmic time, God's word is refracted in time into all these different aspects, the physical, the biological, the economic, the sensitive, the cultural, the historical, the lingual aspects. This is all God's word refracted in creation. Now that biblical picture, which I've just offered to you, has implications, huge implications for education. The biblical picture reveals that what is created can never find its resting place or origin in itself. So there's nothing created, there's nothing in all creation that can be used as the point of origin or the explainer for the other parts of creation. God has created everything in relation to himself, so nothing can be understood fully and truly except in relation to him. Now that means that education that simply leaves students with information about these various aspects of reality, biology, physics, uh, sociology, and so on, just information about these aspects of reality and offers no coherence and offers no relationship between them actually offers no meaning. It offers no meaning. To leave students without an understanding of the coherence and relationship of all things in relation to their origin is to leave them a false, incomplete, and reductionist vision of the world. And the great lack in modern education is actually a loss then of this integrating principle that brings unity to all these diversities, this diversity of study. In fact, that's what the word university really means. Unity and diversity, which in the history of the West was understood to be God and his word who provides the unity in the midst of the diversity of all these different studies. So that's the first problem. The second problem is that any attempt to offer a vision of coherence or meaning in that attempt to offer a vision, what a non-Christian education will do if it tries to offer some kind of idea of coherence, will take one or more of the aspects of reality that, from those bands of color. It will take one of those or two or three of them, for example, the physical, and it will try to use that one strand of color to account for all the other colors. 
That is all the other aspects of reality. Uh, so the physical, for example, will give you a radically materialist, materialistic, naturalistic view of the world. It will say that really, the only thing that's really real is the physical, is, 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 is energy, is, is the physical reality. And everything else is just a byproduct of what is actually really physical. And we call that materialism, naturalism, physicalism uh, in philosophy. So the non-Christian non education will offer an account of reality. If it does try to offer a sense of coherence or meaning, it will take one created aspect and it will try and account for all the rest of creation in terms of that one particular part of creation. This, of course, leaves uh, a radically reductionistic, it reduces creation uh, that uh, is destructive of meaning and leaves students empty and unprepared for life and freedom. So the first, then, reason a Christian education is so important is that only when we see the root of all creation in Christ with the coherence and meaning that this brings, can we really grasp the truth, the wonder, the beauty of the cosmos and our place in it? So a Christian education is, in a sense, a Copernican revolution uh, in uh, our understanding of reality that sees Christ and his word at the center of everything. We take Christ and his word, he's placed at the center of everything, uh, the light that shines through that prism. He's the hub at the center of that wheel. He's the unity in the midst of all of that diversity. That's the revolution of a Christian education. In your light, the Bible says, we see light. He's the sun from which everything else is illuminated. So I've talked about education and worldview, and I promise you that was by far the longest uh, of the three points. I've got two shorter, simple points to make now. So uh, how is it that Christ's lordship is applied in the, in, in the area of education? First, in the area of worldview. It's dramatic. It has a, 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 a total reshaping function in education. Worldview, worldview there, education then and worldview. Secondly, education and work. A Christian education will link Christ's lordship to the real world by connecting it specifically to our work and to our calling. Much of modern education today has become essentially pragmatic, pragmatic, um, instrumental. Uh, it's just about achieving certain ends. In other words, the concern of most education is not the cultivation of a critical, discriminating, analytical, creative mind, ready and equipped for the challenges and opportunities to be confronted in life. Much modern education, especially in the West, has become about molding a child to fulfill a particular role or task that the modern state deems important for its ideal future. In other words, being a good, progressive citizen. Now, it may be slightly different in Colombia, but I strongly suspect that in the state schools and in the state education system, the same progressive, humanistic, secular tendencies are present. And you have an opportunity to redirect education um, before it goes too far down the route of the modern Western world. 
Far too much education has become humanistic, indo humanistic indoctrination to press people into a mold and make them fulfill a useful function in the society envisioned by the cultural elites. Education in this situation is not seen as a good end in itself for the flourishing of the human spirit, but is an instrument towards some other end. Uh, perhaps just training yourself for a particular job um, to make as much money as possible, rather than preparing us for work, for the work of life and culture itself. Now, in a Christian education, in light of a biblical worldview, the importance of work is central, but it's set in its proper context, which is greater than merely getting a job to make money, as important as that is. The scriptural context is that God created human beings, as we saw in our last lecture, as his image bearers, making them creators of culture for a purpose. The calling of our first parents, we saw, was to turn creation into a God-glorifying culture. It began with cultivating the ground, uh, but it moved on to, as you see in the book of Genesis, to metallurgy and animal husbandry and on into all the cultural arts. From the beginning, work was not a curse. Work isn't a curse in the Bible. It's a blessing when set in relation to our creator and his purposes. The issue is that work can become, with it can come a sense of futility, a sense of meaninglessness, when it's disconnected from our calling as vocation, as kingly priests serving the kingdom rule of God. And that's the curse of work disconnected from the covenant of grace. Now, to accomplish the task of faithful Christian culture-making, culture that is meaningful, not meaningless, we obviously need wisdom. Wisdom. And of course, that's where education comes in. Wisdom is required. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the end. It's the ground of wisdom. And therefore, it's the foundation of education. That word there, uh, the, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning. It literally means the principal part. So the principal part of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And from that beginning, from right first principles, we move on then into, uh, we have the foundation for education to move into all these other areas to explore with great delight and enthusiasm God's created world. Think about what the prophet Isaiah said. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill and sow cumin and put in wheat in rows and barley in its proper place and emmer as its border? He's talking about the farmer now. For he is rightly instructed, his God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing, threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled, rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Isaiah is actually saying here that by submission to God and his word for creation and his word in scripture, we learn both, we, le we both learn truth and discover our true task and find purpose in it. So Christian education is directed toward the vocation of human beings under God as image bearers, and is in fact an integral part of that calling. 
So to be an image bearer involves the task of education, where we look at creation and scripture to learn the wisdom of God. We especially look at creation in light of scripture and God teaches us. And this, is, of course, is what we're doing with um, children in school, isn't it? We're giving them the basic tools, the, the basic cultural heritage of the tools of learning, and we're helping them explore God's created world so that they can gain wisdom and insight. Christian education is directed then to the vocation of human beings as image bearers, and education is part of that calling. We learn not just to get a job, but to rejoice in life, to discover meaning, to find our calling. It's much better to have a calling and a vocation than simply say, well, I got a job so I can earn some money. Because Christian education is directed towards this cultural work, it obviously has to take cultural history into account with, with special attention on the cultural work in Colombia of South America and of Colombia itself or in the West here of the Western order and social order. This is appropriate because it's where our children live. So a robust Christian approach will take the full spread of history and cultural development into account. It will acknowledge and celebrate God's disclosure of truth, even in non-Christian cultural contexts. And it will assert the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the final truth of his word over all life and culture unveiling then the real world consequences of the different views and visions of the cultural task that we can tease out in education. I mean, if you're teaching history, you're seeing how different visions of culture are fleshed out and worked out in people's lives. The Apostle Paul actually models this approach when he shows in his letters and in the book of Acts, a thorough knowledge of the Greek language a thorough knowledge of its thought and culture, including their poets and philosophers. And this wasn't so that Paul could synthesize Greek culture with Christianity. It was so that he could bring the claims of Christ and his word to bear upon it. He knew he needed to understand his cultural context so that he could apply the lordship of Christ and his word to it, to bring the corrective, to redirect the Greco-Roman world in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Paul's words regarding Greek thought. He said this, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Interestingly, um, our friend uh, in Moscow, Idaho, Doug Wilson, makes the important observation that when Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the natural man does not receive the, the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him, he uses the term, the Greek term, psychikos for the natural man. Now, this was a word coined by Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, for a man at the peak of his thinking and form. It wasn't a word for an uneducated, um, idle individual. So Paul is obviously not, he says the natural man can't receive the things of the Spirit of God. So Paul is not a pagan classicist. He actually is critiquing the Greek philosopher's idea of man, 
But he is, we might say, a biblical classicist, a biblical classicist. As Doug Wilson writes, he says, he does not run from classical culture, nor is Paul defeated or compromised by it. Rather, he declares the lordship of Christ over it. So when our method and our learning submit to Christ's lordship, and we don't attempt to merge with uh, the anti-Christianity around us, then Christ a Christian education emerges resting on the authority of scripture, concerned to enable students to work in creation within their historical context for the culture of Christ. So that's education and work. Finally, and most briefly, education and worship. In Romans chapter 12, verses one through two, uh, Paul actually says that we are called to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice, uh, holy and pleasing to God as our spiritual act of worship, that we are uh, to worship with our entire being. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Transformed by the renewing of your minds. That is our spiritual act of worship. So, when we think about the, uh, the reality of education, it's often helpful to think of education as an aspect of our worship that brings glory to God. If we actually think about the edu education of our children as part of our family worship, as part of our family worship, it will have a massive impact on our educational choices because education is that process of learning to worship and serve God in opposition to all idols. Now this introduces the simple but important distinction again that I mentioned in passing uh, in our last lecture. Education is that process of learning to worship and serve God in opposition to all idols. So fundamentally it's about worship. And the critical distinction that we saw this introduces into our thinking is that of structure and direction. And I know that term is new to you. Those ideas are new to you, I think. So it bears repeating just a little bit at the end of this lecture, what we learned in the last, that this is the uh, vital distinction as we think about education, structure and direction in education. The structure of things concerns creation, the laws, the norms which govern and are to govern all created things. The direction concerns the religious root, the purpose, the focus of all that we do. That is, it concerns our worship. So structure of the God-ordained norms, direction is our worship. It's the focus, it's the purpose, it's the root, it's the way in which we're directing everything toward or away from God. Remember the Apostle Paul said, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. Uh, you can contrast um, in a number of different ways, whether you look in the fine arts and music and painting, or whether you look in uh, the life sciences and ideas about origins, you can see there people looking at the same data looking at the same laws and norms, but coming to completely different conclusions in terms of 
direction. That's the religious route we talked about in the last session. So in the same way, whilst non-Christians educate and have schools and often look at the same information in chemistry, in math, in physics, that is the structures, the direction of the education is altogether different. This is first seen in reference back to the ideas of origin and meaning. In which direction is reality said to point? When we look at mathematics, when we look at physics, biology, culture, history, in which direction is reality said to point? That's the first question. This orientation will affect how we theorize with regard to the relation of the various aspects of reality. Now, a truly Christian education will scrutinize, will look carefully at all the non-Christian genius that's out there. It won't reject the learning of non-Christians. It will look at all the genius that's out there, that by God's kindness, where people have actually been able to get at truths within creation without necessarily seeing the truth, they've been able to get at truths within creation about the structures of creation that God has established, albeit without that depth of insight. And then we can take that discovery in a Christian education and redirect it, turning it to a godly purpose as an act of worship. We don't synthesize with the ideas of the world, which is idolatry, but we redirect all true knowledge in service to God. So in the end, I'm suggesting to you that all education is an expression of what moves and directs the heart. It's an expression of what moves and directs the heart. It uncover, uncovers the paradigm by which the educator views the world. It reveals that which the educator adores. Think about that as a teacher, that as you teach and the direction in which you teach reveals what you worship and adore. Education is actually an offering in service to someone or something. This being so, as Christians, we can't sit by while worship goes up in all these state schools and amongst unbelievers to all manner of substitute divinities in the public school classroom to matter and energy and so on, and yet remain unmoved and silent in the most, one of the most fundamental foundational areas of life, education. I've just got one quote and then a final comment to make as I close. Listen to Calvin Seaveld's very powerful question and exhortation uh, in this regard. He says, how can you live openly in this world, God's cosmonomic theater of wonder, while the graciously preserved unbelievers revel in music and drama, painting, poetry and dance with a riot of color, a deafening sound raised in praise to themselves and their false God. Where is our concert of freshly composed, holy stringed music, our jubilant dance of praise to the Lord? What penetrating drama of our hands made? Why do we not break into new song? This is needed to show our God we love the Lord here too passionately, that humans of darkened understanding can make merry under God's nose and curse the Lord with desperately, damnably forceful art should hurt you. God is not dead. Christ lives. 
Human existence is not absurd. We glory in the image of God. The world is not a curse. It is a good creation struggling under sin toward final deliverance, end quote. That's a wonderful statement from Calvin Seaveld about what we need to be inculcating in our students, this wonder, this love of God, this glory in his creation, and a desire to be obedient to his word, to create, to form, to shape through education, our lives, vocation, and calling to bring worship and glory to God. The great English Puritan John, Pilt John Milton saw that education was about just that. Repairing the ruins, he said, of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Repairing the ruins of our first parents that we and our children might regain to love, serve, and worship God in what Seaveld calls the cosmic struggle toward final deliverance. Christian education that you are in, friends, in Colombia is central to that struggle. I can't stress enough how central to the struggle toward final deliverance education is. Education represents a plan for the future. Those who govern the minds of the young govern the course of the future. In your hands are these malleable young minds. How are you going to direct them? You have an amazing opportunity to do so in terms of the Christian world and life view. It is central, Christian education is central to this struggle and is therefore a defining investment in the life of our children and the kingdom of God. Kingdom education is our heritage and the question is which side of this struggle is your family on? If you could ask me that one thing, if I could turn the clock back in Western society here in Canada, and you said to me, uh, Joe, if you could turn the clock back 50 years, what one thing would you do uh, as a Christian in the culture to try and avoid the decadent slide into decay where you are in Canada now? And I would say very simply this, the one thing that I would do if I could turn the clock back is start Christian schools everywhere would be to focus on the minds of the young, get them out of state education, and get them into Christian schools with a robust Christian world and life view, able to critique and engage all the ideas of culture, all the ideas of the culture around them, and bring a robust defense of the faith. You have that opportunity in Colombia, as teachers, to do it now, and know that what you're doing is a plan for the future to the glory of God and the prosperity of your children. It's passed down as a prophecy Every year about this time